the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks for that introduction, Dr. Bill, and welcome to the show. You know, there are plenty of things you could be doing right now and a lot of other shows you could be listening to, but I appreciate you tuning into this one. And wow, you've picked a great week to do so. First, special thanks to Jack, who is engineering on the other side of the glass, and to the Salem Media Network for distributing the program. Okay, I've said on numerous occasions that maybe the best way to spend $20 or $30 is to buy a book. That's because a book well-written that contains wisdom and insight and a lifetime of, a lifetime of experience is an oversized value. Our guest today knows all about value. In fact, he said one of the biggest lessons he's learned over the years is that it's not about the price, it's about the value of the dollar paid. Christopher Ullman is the author of a tremendous new book. It's called Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant, Success Strategies of the Wealthy, Powerful, and Just Plain Wise. Chris is founder and president of Allman Communications, a strategic advisory firm. But before that, he's held numerous jobs in government, actually working in both Democrat and Republican White House administrations. And for 18 years, he was director of global communications for the Carlyle Group, a legendary global investment firm. Oh, and one more thing. Chris is a world champion whistler. There's a lot to talk about. And uh, Chris, I am thrilled to have you and uh, welcome to the show. Well, Paul, I am so delighted to be here to visit with you and your listeners, and uh, what a blessing this is, and thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you, and I'll tell you right at the start, uh, I love this book uh, from the very first page, and I think you hooked me when you started off talking about hailing from Massapequa Park on Long Island. Um, I'm from the south shore of Long Island. We both delivered newspapers. I'm sure that you delivered Newsday. Is that right? Correct. Good old Newsday, which was an afternoon paper at that time. Right. We remember we'd come home from school and the stack of papers would be dropped off by a guy in a van, right? And then you had to load them up and get them out. That's exactly right. <laughs> I have amazing memories. And since you referenced the whistling, that was central to me becoming a good whistler is that I would whistle for two hours every day from 13 years old to 16 years old. And it made a huge impact on my whistling ability. Now we're going to talk about a lot of things and I wasn't necessarily sure when we'd bring up the whistling, but since you did, um, so you start off as a kid, no one taught you to whistle or did you have someone who kind of guided you? My father, uh, who has since passed away, uh, but taught me to whistle, how to whistle when I was around five years old he was a very good whistler, not not a champion whistler, but he had a beautiful whistle. He whistled all the time around the house, uh, particularly Gilbert and Sullivan songs that were some of his favorites. And so thankfully, I'm able to whistle. 
And then, as with many things in life, if you have a, a basic skill, what do you do with it? You develop it, and uh, really, you know, and in this case, uh, my range, my ability to stay in the right key, developing my repertoire, developing like funky techniques and and the like. So, I was able to do all those things over time, and that's what kind of propelled me to uh, international whistling stardom. I know when people I've shared this with people because our, our mutual friend Tim Gagline introduced me to you through your new book, and uh, I've told people this, and everybody immediately is intrigued by this. They want to know, like I never knew this existed. Here's your TED talk. I mean, you did a TED talk on this. You've whistled for the president of the United States. You've whistled. I mean, what a what a life, right? I mean, you never could have imagined this happening. I'm sure. Oh my gosh, that you phrase it perfectly. I never could have imagined it that. Uh, this regular Long Island kid would be in the Oval Office one day whistling for the president, George W. Bush, and uh, who Tim, our mutual friend, worked for, as did I. And uh, I never imagined I'd be standing in front of 65,000 people at the U.S. Capitol uh, with the National Symphony Orchestra behind me whistling a song. Uh, that was really exciting. And And then I have what I'm really really happy about is a, what I call a whistling ministry where I whistle happy birthday to friends and family and, and you got us some total strangers almost 650 times a year. And it is just such a delight to honor someone's life. And, you know, when you think of it, typically you celebrate, you know, a handful of birthdays every year, your own, your immediate family, uh, some close friends, maybe some colleagues if you're in an office. But beyond that, you know, you hear about people's birthdays, but I literally do 650. And I just, in this uh, very simple way, just kind of inject myself into their life with a recorded version just for them. And I text it to them or email it to them. And and I get some of the most heartwarming, blessing-filled notes from people. You made my day. My birthday would not be complete without your serenade. Like, mm. oh my gosh, it's just so so thoughtful. And it's just really, uh, you know, anything that celebrates life is a good thing. Ah, yeah. Well, what do you think it is about whistling in particular? You, you talked about throughout your life in your book, you kind of mentioned you like to lighten people's hearts and you like to share joy and spread joy. What is it about whistling that does that to people? Or for people. Well, you know, whistling, uh, for those who like it, because there are some people who don't, but it thankfully is a very small portion of the population. For those who like it, I think they embrace the whimsy that this is probably the, the world's first instrument, other than perhaps the human voice, where you can actually make music. So this is, you know, there were probably cavemen, you know, millions of years ago who were whistling in their caves and and it's you know there are some very famous whistling songs that remind people of happy times you know the famous andy griffith theme song and almost every uh, every everyone over 40 years old knows that song sure and you know so uh and it's you know there's varying qualities and yeah, once I was on a game show 
uh, and I was whistling on the show and I was wearing a bow tie and they said, well, it's no wonder why you're wearing a bow tie because whistling is whimsical and bow ties are whimsical. <laughs> and yes, and it makes people happy. It's a fun, it's just a fun, simple, joyous thing. Yeah. I had a gym teacher growing up on Long Island who would whistle and you'd hear him you know, out the window, he'd be walking by with the open window and you just knew Mr. Russ was on his way to the schoolyard because you could hear him whistling. So I, people are going to ask me, I mean, if I don't ask you to whistle, I almost don't want to ask you because you're probably so tired of doing it, but can't you, you, can you whistle something for us? Well, first of all, I, I consider it a blessing to be able to share my gift. So I'll never tire of it. And I appreciate the opportunity. So here is uh, it's, it's a song from a Disney song. It's a bell from Beauty and the Beast. Okay. Here we go. It goes on and on and on. Um, it gives you a little. Yeah, you've got great range there. That's fun. That's really great. Well, thanks. Thank you, Chris. We may ask you to do it before the end of the show, but that is uh, that is a great talent. And thanks for uh, thanks for giving us a little background on that. I know oh. your, your your TED Talk is fascinating. People can just YouTube your name, and you, they'll find that 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 must have been a thrill to do. Oh my gosh, it was like really amazing, amazing experience, and. <clears throat> So the way it came about was I met someone who uh, helped organize a, a, the TEDx talk here in Washington, D.C. And it's a, a pretty big, well-organized TED talk. I mean, there were 700 people in the audience. And, and the guy said, you're a whistler. Wow, we should, you should, we should have you do a TED talk. And I said, well, that would be really cool. And then he said, well, what would you talk about? And I said, I have no idea. Let me think about it. <laughs> You know, because TED Talks have to have a point. Yeah. What is your very specific point? So I spent literally two or three months pondering why anyone would care that I whistle well. And then I kind of surveyed the landscape and, and I looked at how my whistling intersected with different people, whether it was the president or people at the U.S. Capitol or people on their birthdays. And, and I said, you know what this is? This is a simple thing that I've taken to a higher level that brings people joy. And then, so that was the point of the talk was that I have a simple gift, but guess what? You have a simple gift, you, Paul. And, and then people who are listening right now, everyone has a simple gift. And then the key is what is your gift and can you develop it and share it? Because I, I take this counterintuitive perspective. A lot of times you hear the expression, Oh, you need to go change the world. And I say, really? The odds of changing the world are effectively zero. <laughs> uh, and, but the odds of you affecting the life, the happiness, the heart, the spirit of the person literally right next to you is very high. So I go with the odds is that I am going to focus more on touching the hearts of the people right next to me rather than this kind of quixotic notion of changing the mm. world. You know, very few people can change the world. You know, Steve Jobs changed the world with the iPhone and Elon Musk is changing the world. But there's just a couple of people, but, the, but pretty much everyone else can change and impact the lives of the people right next to them. Yeah. So that's, that's why I, 
I'm blessed to be able to have this gift and then to try to share it with people. Well, that's a wonderful, generous ministry that you you perform. And uh, this is, I'm talking with Christopher Ullman. He's the uh, world-class, world champion whistler. But more than that, obviously a husband and a father and and an author of a new book that we're talking about, uh, Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant. And um, Chris, we talked briefly about your childhood, but uh, one thing that your father, many things that your father taught you, but I think one of the things that jumped out at me from reading the your book is your your dad used to say that the world is your oyster, and uh, that seems to have borne out across your life. Um, how important was that seed that he planted? Yeah, very important. I'm glad that resonated with you, Paul, because it had a huge impact on me. You know, what's interesting about my father is he was he was born in 1934, so he was a Depression era child, and he grew up without a father and kind of tough circumstances. And in his like kind of mid forties, he achieved all he ever thought he could achieve. So he kind of stopped trying. And so that, that, that wasn't good because it's not the best role model in terms of like striving. You know, I, I I'm always pushing my kids to be your best. So, but, and then there's some cognitive dissonance here. So on one hand, he has stopped striving. But then he says to me, there's a big world out there and you need to go and discover it and then see how your gifts can be used in that world. And that's really what the book is about. It's about going from kind of the minor leagues to the major leagues of going from um, working you know, I didn't know big wig people. I didn't know chairman of companies and chairman of committees and presidents and uh, uh, billionaires on Long Island. But when I came to Washington, that's the the people I started working with and working for. And as a result, I had to up my game. <clears throat> so what I've done is, and this let so this book is how to be your best, not how to be a billionaire, not how to be better than the person down the block. It's how to be your best and, and be successful. However you define it. And, and so I, and I capture that through these lessons. So I have 50 lessons from these 15 people and literally four billionaires, uh, the chairman of congressional committees, federal agencies, uh, Glenn Youngkin, who's the governor of Virginia. Uh, there's a lesson in there. And each of these people I worked with personally, I didn't just survey a bunch of bigwigs and try to figure out what their secrets were. I actually worked with them for more than 30 years and, and then captured what made them successful and then said, well, if, if, if they can do it, then maybe I can do it. And so I was able to pluck out very specific lessons and then apply them to my life and and this is really important, is that this is not um, like heroic activity. This is basic stuff. So if you're, if you have purpose in life, if you are humble, if you are disciplined, you can do these things. You don't have to run the Boston Marathon in two and a half hours to be able to do these things. It's like very, very doable. Each lesson is an anecdote that looks at um, there's certain ways of thinking and behaving to be your best. And so it, 
I'm having a lot of fun with it and getting great feedback from people who've read it. And, you know, it's really, the book in itself is a ministry and to, to help people, especially young people, be their best. Oh, this is, uh, yeah, if, if you're a parent listening and you're thinking, what can I give my teenage or college age young professional, this is the book to give them. Um, this is obviously advice that you've not just, as you say, curated from other people's writings, but you've lived it. Um, before we get into the lessons, I'm curious, uh, obviously you, you, you move from the Long Island, New York, to Washington, you get a job working in Delaware for a governor and then in working for a representative from the House of Representatives. Uh, all of that kind of builds on your career. Um, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you had, you've had quite a trajectory to go from SUNY Binghamton to not that many years later working in the White House. Did you ever have to pinch yourself? Oh, my gosh, yes. You know, um, you know we have an ex- uh, a phrase that we say with our children every day. Uh, two of them are in college now, so I only say it with one of them. But this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Amen. Because every day is a gift. Crazy things happen, illness and the like, accidents, you never know. So you must every day... Praise God for your blessings and the like, and just like really be in a state of gratitude. So throughout my career, I can't say I was perfect at it, but I really tried to be grateful to say, wow, I I remember this one time I was sitting on the, in the U.S. Capitol on the House of Representatives floor and John Kasich, who was uh, then the House Budget Committee chairman is proposing a balanced budget. And I'm looking around and I'm saying, praise God. I can't believe I'm here right now. This is astounding mm. that I have the chance to be here. And, you know, when I got to work in the White House and, and then whistle for the president, same thing. I thought, how is this possible? This is amazing. And uh, each job I've had, I, um, you know, so God gave me gifts and I've been able to develop them. I uh, gave me good health and gave me a wonderful wife who's a full-time mom and supported me in my career. And, you know, they, and then as, as your listeners know, these things build on each other. You go from uh, one job to the next to the next, and hopefully you have more responsibility, more stature, you know, better compensation. And, but you've got to be grateful along the way, knowing that, you know, life is fleeting and, and, you know, it may not be there. So gratitude yeah. is critical. There's a couple of lessons in the book. Actually, one of the most important lessons in the book is about gratitude. May, may I share this lesson? Please, let's, let's, yeah, let's really... jump in. Yeah, let's go. So in this, in this example, this is really pretty amazing. So here is a billionaire who is talking with a, a reporter, and he's talking about how he grew up with a single mom and uh, worked his way through college and then went to Harvard Business School, served in the military, got a job at Marriott Corp, and then started the Carlyle Group, which is this investment firm. Now, and then he became a billionaire. So you, a lot of people would think it's because they're just so brilliant. And now, yes, this man did work hard. His name is Dan, Dan Yellow. And, but, Dan said that he's so blessed that he levitates out of bed every day with gratitude for all that he has. 
Hmm. And that he, I, I've known him for 22 years and I've only heard him use that phrase once to levitate out of bed with gratitude, <laughs> but it like, like a lightning bolt just whacked me in the head. And I said, wow, like that is like a state of gratitude to always, to not just get comfortable with where you are, but to always be grateful for what you have, even if you're used to it, you know, if, if you're, you know, if you drive a nice car, yeah, you're going to get used to it, but that's, that's dangerous because then you just won't be as grateful for it. But if you can be in a state of gratitude, be how, how many people are thankful for their stove or their refrigerator? Imagine if you didn't have those two things, right. how life would be different every single day. It would be incredibly more challenging. I've read, I've heard this, that if you look at all the conveniences that we have in modern day from indoor heating, indoor plumbing, uh, you know, all that, we have the equivalent of 200 servants uh, in contrast Whoa. to the 1700s Americans. Can you imagine? I mean, like. I, yes, I think that makes total sense. <laughs> but see, this is, the, this is one of the challenges in life is that, you know, if you get a promotion, you get used to it real fast. If you get a raise, you get used to it. If you win the lottery, you get used to it. And it changes your baseline. So your level of happiness is now measured off of a new baseline and that's not, that's dangerous. So how, that is, that yeah. is a bad thing. Chris, how do you cultivate a spirit of gratitude? You personally, what's your, do you have a, a regimen? Do you have a daily routine that you do to keep that uh, front and center? Well, pray. And so um, I, I give thanks to God every day, multiple times a day. Mm. Uh, I have this really fun thing I do. I love bicycling. So I will, uh, when I get to the top of a very big hill, I, I do what I call the 10 B's. And um, I, I say, thank you, Lord, uh, for my blessings and for my, my body, brain, bone, back, breath, balance, blood, blood pressure, bottom, and bike. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's, on one hand, it's silly, but it's an important reminder that, you know, no one owes me these things and they could go away. And so to be in a state of gratitude is to constantly be thanking God for your blessings, thanking people for being in your life and being nice to the bus driver. Like there are some men out in front of my house right now who are repairing something. I've already gone out and thanked them for their work. Mm. You know, it's cold out there and it's hard labor, you know, but they have a good spirit and, but, it's nice to hear that people appreciate it. So yeah. oh. it's like kind of being a state of gratitude is like, you just have to have these practices, whether it's saying a, a prayer when you wake up, saying a prayer, when you have a meal, when you get to the top of the hill on your bike, go through your 10 B's or whatever letter you want to use. Yeah, no, that's a great word. I have something similar. My, I'm a runner and friends and I, when we run, we always finish our run. We always say, it's great to be alive. That's like our, that's our Amen. A, a closing closing line uh, while we run. Chris, um, as we're jumping into the attributes and to the lessons here, there's a great quote I think that's foundational. You say in the book, this is a quote from you, the big wigs in this book succeeded because they developed skills, prepared well, and executed over and over until they achieved mastery. But most importantly, they wanted it. What, what is it? Oh, my God. I, I love this question. This is great. Um, it is whatever is important to you. And this really gets at the, the heart of purpose. 
you know, purpose is so important because, you know, if, if, if I were drawing this on a, a, a blackboard right now, you'd have you on the left, you'd have your objective over on the right, and then you'd have this line going between the two, and you have to go, go from here to there. And so your it is your purpose. And with David Rubenstein, when he founded the Carlisle Group, his it was to become the, the, the best, most respected investment firm in the world. That was his objective. And because he had that very specific objective, it dictated his behavior and his thinking day after day after day. And that's where you get into this whole thing of if you, you have purpose, then you develop your skills and then you master them and then you execute over and over and over again. And so my, I've had, and you can have more than one it, which is good. So I've had one it for me was becoming a, an accomplished whistler. And it took years and years, but I eventually won four international whistling championships and I've done lots of cool things as, as we discussed earlier. Chris, when we come back, I want to jump more into the into the strategies, into the lessons. Um, we're talking with Chris Ullman. He's uh, author of uh, Four Billionaires in a Parking Attendant. I'm Paul Batura. You're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Hang on right after the break uh, for the second part of this uh, great conversation about this terrific book. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll be right back. Well, welcome back. I'm Paul Vitura. You're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. We're talking today with Christopher Ullman. He's author of Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant, uh, Success Strategies of the Wealthy, Powerful, and Just Plain Wise. This is a fantastic book. Uh, we're a couple of weeks early maybe to start your Christmas shopping, but you should get several of these. Good stocking stuffers, great for uh, the rising generation in your family, uh, young people, high school, college, young adults, uh, people who are in the thick of their career. Um, Chris, I am curious about this. These are strategies that you've learned over the years. Um, I assume this is really applicable to anybody at any age, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, so on one hand, uh, a young person, if they're truly open-minded, could uh, absorb many of the lessons because they, the lessons get at being purposeful, innovation, accomplishment, uh, productivity, solving problems, building bridges, uh, being humble, thinking of others, being authentic. But I've, I've talked to, heck, David Rubenstein read the book and said he loved it and learned a lot, and he's 74 years old. Hmm. I had a guy uh, who's in the investment world read it recently and said that there were a couple of specific lessons that he had never thought about before that really impacted him. So when I hear that, it, it shows me that the lessons are applicable to people at all ages. I think people who are older will be, they'll kind of cherry pick what they're, it's what really resonates with them. But younger people who are more of a blank slate will benefit. I met a guy who's, who's, um, 23 years old last night, who's clearly very sharp. This guy works at Goldman Sachs in New York. And, and I said to him, they were talking about my book. And I said, I said, look me in the eye. And he looks me in the eye. And I said, if you read this book, it will radically change your life. And he said, I don't believe you. <laughs> and I said, let me give you a few of the lessons. 
So I ran him through a few of them and he said, wow, those seem compelling. He said, uh, how can I get the book? Uh, I said, we can go on Amazon and get the book. So it, it, the key is, that's why I say if, as you develop purpose in life, meaning having your it, having your goal. And if you're truly humble, there's a, there's a lot in this book about humility because how can you learn and absorb and then put into effect lessons that you learn in life if you're not humble. Mm. Uh, and then, and then, uh, you know, then it's really just discipline. You know, so much of life is just executing over and over and over again until you get really good at it. And that's how I got to be a good whistler is I just kept doing it over and over and over again. And then you have muscle memory and it really helps. Uh, yeah. And I say to our kids a lot, there's two kinds of pain in life, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Choose, choose your pain. Ooh, you know, I love that. <laughs> You've got a great line where you're talking about uh, be purposeful. <laughs> this is such a great line. Stop futzing around and make a plan. I love that term. <laughs> that may that seems like a Long Island term, maybe. But yes, what, yes, uh, futz is a great Long Island word. Let's talk about that because I mean, right now we hear about this generation of you know basement dwelling, video game playing, even young adults, even some older people who are just kind of um, wallowing through life. Um, how important is that? And if someone is listening who can't quite get their act together, give them a little pep talk. Wow. Well, so purpose, and this really gets at the heart of purpose is that, you know, I, I will meet a 22, 23 year old and I'll say, and we're talking about the career, what they're inter interested in, excited about. And, and I'll say, remember your life is one quarter over. So you better get going. And then they're like, they kind of gulp wow. go, oh, wow. I never <laughs> thought about it like that. And I say, hey, I turned 60 not long ago, and my life is arguably, you know, two-thirds to three-quarters over. So uh, there's no time like the present. So this notion of futzing is, you know, it gets at first appreciating your skills and, and learning from others and embracing like the potential of wonder is to look at the, everything around you and be open to excitement. And it could be science. It could be medicine. It could be technology. It could be uh, just nature. And uh, if you are open to these things, then, then a whole world of possibility will become evident to you. And then as you look at your skills and your interests, and, and this is kind of the pep talk part, is it, can you harvest your skills and your interests to actually get stuff done? You know, one of the reasons why I talk about the power of, of uh, helping other people is that you know, God said, love God, love your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor. And so I have a heavy emphasis on both of those. Pray every day, give thanks, worship the Lord, but never love your neighbor. And if you can think outside of yourself, you know, more often, then the, I think finding purpose becomes easier because it's not just a selfish activity. It's kind of reveling in your capacity to help another person. So, and so if there's someone out there who says, you know, I, I just don't know what my purpose is. I, I, I'm just like stuck in the basement. I'm not sure what to do. 
I mean, what I what I would say is get outside and just talk to people who do different things. There's an immense amount that you can learn from talking to people. And you could, if you talk to the bus driver, are you happy being a bus driver? Do you find purpose in it? Talk to the lawyer, talk to the doctor, talk to the construction worker, and you know, get outside of your own head and learn about other people. And the more you do that, the more you'll see what's out there. Mm. And then you will hopefully, it will kind of ignite something in you and say, wow, I have some skill that might be applicable in, in that career. I have some interest in there. I've always been good with numbers. Well, let me go find some people who are an accountant or a mathematician or you know, a certified financial planner or something like that. Because it does take work. It's not just going to happen one day. Uh, I, I, when I mentor young people, and that's really where this book came from, because I did a ton of mentoring, I talk about the process of discernment. Now, discernment is a deep thinking and a period of inquiry where you talk to a lot of people and you read and you pray to try to figure out what is out there and then what are your skills and interests and then trying to bring your heart and your head, that that's your skills and your interests, in sync with each other mm. so that you can then go pursue something that is out there, you know, some activity, some career or the like. And, you know, and, and back to this notion of life is short, it, it really is. And you don't know when your time is up. So every day is a gift. And I would also say, in addition to reading my book, go find some books about people who suffered in life. It'd be Viktor Frankl's um, book, who's a Holocaust survivor. There's an amazing book uh, called Unbroken by Laura Hildebrand about this guy named Louis Zamperini, who sure. uh, was in a raft for 40 days after his World War II plane was shot down and and he survived, and then he be, he became a Christian and lived this life of great purpose. And but when you learn about people who've suffered like that, you can you can see some of the ways that uh, people kind of get over hardship, and then how they uh, come up with purpose. Yeah, I, I, you're talking about cultivating a spirit of curiosity about other people, and uh, Arthur Brooks, who endorsed your book, a wonderful endorsement. He, I know he kind of has coined the term, are you a diminisher or an illuminator? You know, are you the mm -hmm. kind of person who just never asks, uh, you know, if you're an illuminator, you're asking people questions. And um, as you were talking, I was thinking about that great line that the most dangerous place to view the world is like from behind your desk, right? Get out and mm -hmm. talk to people. Um, let's, you know, so obviously um, being purposeful, another uh, strategy you have is to think like your successor. You've clearly from the book, you had a, have had, have a very close relationship with Arthur Levitt. Tell us a little bit about him. He's in his nineties now. What a remarkable guy. Oh, Arthur Levitt is a great, great American, a great human, a great friend, a visionary leader. Uh, if any of your listeners are in New York, so Arthur's father was uh, a dedicated public servant for decades. He was a controller of the state of New York. Uh, Arthur was very successful on Wall Street. 
then I intersected with him when he became the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, he was the longest serving chairman. And the man is just a remarkable person and a great thinker. And he had this phrase, which was, think like your successor every day. Now, on its face, you know, you're your listeners are probably thinking, how do I think like someone who doesn't exist or I don't know who that person is? I say, aha, that is a good question. So the answer is, if you are open-minded, then you will allow um, people and ideas to come into your life to help you do your job the best. So the way I think about it is this. So I have a job. And I go to work every day and I sit at the same computer and, and, um, you know, but if I quit or if I'm fired or I die, someone else is going to take my job and they're going to come in and they're going to look at the array of things that uh, I had accomplished. And they're going to put them in four categories, brilliant, good, mediocre, crazy. And since these people are not wed to uh, all the things that I had done, they're going to take the crazy and get rid of it instantly. They're going to take the mediocre and either get rid of it or figure out how to make it better. And now why, and this is the heart of the lesson, why should I wait for that person to get rid of the crazy? Mm. Shouldn't I be getting rid of the crazy? And you say, of course, but here's the challenge. The challenge is that we get in habits and, you know, yesterday is, is, is going to be like the day before. And today is going to be like yesterday. And tomorrow is going to be like today, meaning there's this constancy to life. And there's merit to that because we become efficient and you have pattern recognition and the like. But if you get stuck in your ways, you will not be open to innovation. And to think like your successor every day, and this is what Levitt espoused, you will be in a state of openness. So when you're in a meeting with your team, and you actually give license to people to criticize the way you do things and not get all uh, mopey and sad if someone points out uh, how you can improve. But a lot of people don't want to hear that. They literally can't take it. Yeah, you they say, this is the way I do it, and that's the way I'm going to keep doing it. You say, and then those people don't think like their successor. Right. You mentioned in the book that one of the questions that you regularly ask after you've given a talk or given a presentation is what's one thing I could have done better? That's a hard question. Yes. That's a hard question to ask. I mean, you have to be kind of have to steal yourself if you really want honest answers. Yes. You know, well, but, but at first you kind of wince. Will someone say, Oh, well you say, ah, a lot, or you go, um, a lot, or you, you babble sometimes, or your PowerPoint slides have too many words on them or you look down and you don't look at the audience. I mean, there, there could be a, a thousand things that you can improve upon. But once you get in the, a state of openness and you regularly hearing where you can improve, then it doesn't hurt as much. And if anything, it doesn't hurt at all eventually. And you just get excited about it. I mean, look at professional sports teams. They are really a great model. After every NFL game, they sit and watch their performance. Mm -hmm. And then someone is saying, Here is, here's the good, here's the bad. This is what you need to do to improve. And not enough, especially in corporate America, does that. And it's really important. That's a great, and, yeah. Yeah. 
No, this is this is Christopher Ullman. He's author of a new book, Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant. I don't want to get away from that. I, this is a, you know, you, we raise a lot of yes men in a lot of organizations, nonprofit, for profit even. Um, you confronted your friend, colleague, boss, David Rubenstein, after he gave a talk at Radio City Music Hall. He thought it went well, and you said it. He, you thought it went awful. I mean, is that right? Do I have that story right? Uh, you do. So uh, this lesson is about the courage to give and to get criticism. So here's this billionaire bigwig gives his talk in front of 2,500 people at this Wall Street Journal conference uh, in New York City at Radio City and Music Hall. And he walks off the stage and we walk out, out of the building at the, at the stage door. And then he looks at me and says, well, that went well. What did you think? And I said, that was terrible. <laughs> And and I had not worked for him for very long at that point. So I was very nervous, but I just decided I'm going to be brutally honest. And then he said, and this is all he said, why? And so he gave me license. He didn't say you're a jerk and shut up or how dare you? He said, why? So that was an invitation to tell him why I thought it was terrible. So I, I gave him probably like five pieces of feedback. And David's not the kind of guy who says, my, that's brilliant feedback, and I'm going to reflect on that. No, he just said, okay. And then literally the next year, he gave a talk at the same event. It was like the the third annual. And he knocked the cover off the ball. He took every piece of advice I gave him, and it made a huge difference. And he is now one of the most sought-after public speakers out there amazing. He, he speaks publicly probably 20 times a week, and I'm not exaggerating at all. It's, it's astounding. And these are like big things, too. He's at you know, the World Economic Forum. He is at the Kennedy Center. He's on TV. He's giving huge speeches and major venues. And, uh, but he has gotten better and better because he's open-minded. And, but remember, there's two sides to the equation. I, he, was, he solicited it, the feedback, but I was courageous to give him the feedback because a lot of times people will just say, Oh, David, you're brilliant. That was great. And they don't help the boss in any way. in when they say stuff like that. Yeah. I think Charles so, uh, Glenn Youngkin is the, the current governor of Virginia. And when I worked with him at Carlisle after every speech, he would say, what can I do better? That was literally the first words out of his mouth. Not a, not how great am I? It was, what can I do better? And so he has that spirit of improvement. And once, once you start doing it, you get used to it and you see marked improvement in your performance. And then it's a self-fulfilled prophecy. You, you're, uh, it's a great way to approach things. Yeah. The former way, the, uh, the lauding someone when they don't deserve it. I think Charles Spurgeon, the old English preacher used to say, that's the glorification of the worm is how he put it. Uh, what do you do if you work for someone who doesn't have that open spirit who is bristle, you know, bristles at criticism, who thinks they have it all figured out. What, what kind of advice do you give people who are in that situation? Well, you know, it depends on if they are a subordinate or a boss. If they're a subordinate, then you need to step up as a manager and, and not wait till your annual review to give that kind of feedback. It has to be on the spot. It has to be, okay, you just gave this talk or you wrote this paper or you did this project 
and you know, here are the good things and here are the areas for improvement. So you've got to be like very specific and you've got to be objective about it. Here's the good, here's the bad. I actually cite this um, amazing anecdote from the movie Amadeus, which is about Mozart, where uh, Mozart debuts this new opera and then, and the king is in, or the emperor is in attendance and Mozart says to the uh, emperor, what do you think? And emperor says, I liked it, but uh, you know, there are a couple of things I didn't like. And then Mozart says, what was the problem? And the emperor says, well, there's too many notes. (laughs) And then Mozart says, well, which notes didn't you like? And he says, "I, I don't know. I just, I just, there's just too many. So the emperor did not do a good job giving feedback. Mm. So when you are working with a subordinate or, or your boss, and, and if you're an advisor, as I am to my clients, you have to be very, you have to be courageous in the first place, but you have to be specific and constructive. This is, so you'd say, all right, when you gave that presentation, you spoke too fast. You need to slow down. You used a PowerPoint. You should have memorized it. And you, uh, you use complex terminology that no one understands. So you need to talk in plain English. Those are three very specific things. So, uh, and also I say in the book that if you work for someone who is not interested in feedback, then find another job because life is too short to work for people like that. Mm. And now thankfully Rubenstein, Von Youngkin, all my clients are open to it. I was on the phone one hour ago with a client who did, who's they totally screwed something up the other day. And I was incredibly blunt. And I said, here are the four things you need to do better next time. Mm. And this person didn't say you're a jerk and I'm never going to talk to you again. This person said, you're right. I'm going to work on that. And it will make you as a, the person giving the feedback more relevant. And you will actually be able to help someone improve. Yeah. And what's better than that? And you know, it's good for your career. Uh, so there's a lot of pluses. Oh, this is it. good. I'm taking notes. Be courageous and be specific. That's really, really helpful. Um, yeah. In our remaining minutes, Chris, uh, we've talked about billionaires. We haven't talked about the parking attendant. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Salah. Is that my pronouncing his name right? Uh, Salah. Okay. So tell Salah. us about him. And we've got three or four minutes left. All right. Tell us so, about Salah. Um, so I, I worked at this downtown office building in Washington for 18 years. And the last four I was there, this young man who was an Ethiopian immigrant parked my car every day. His name is Sala. And he was incredibly happy. So, and it didn't matter what the conditions were. You know, I pull in the garage in the winter and it's cold. I pull in the garage in the summer and it's, it's hot and it's always dim. And no matter what, Sala was in a good mood. Mr. Chris, how are you? How's your family? Give me your keys. Let me park your car. Have a good day. And it was, he was noticeably happy. And then I would get in the car. I'm pardon me. I would, I would get in the the elevator. I'd go up to the third or fourth floor and there are all these billionaires, literally three billionaires and a whole bunch of other like super wealthy, powerful people. And, you know, maybe they were in a good mood. Oftentimes they were not. David Rubenstein says he doesn't know many happy rich people. And I say, how is that possible? The guy down in the basement, you know, is not making a lot of money and he's happy. And all these billionaires are kind of grumpy. And it's because he saw it, chose to be happy. Mm. He counts his blessings and he really is focused on 
what he has rather than what he doesn't have. And that spirit just shines through. He has a brilliant smile. And when we got to be friends, uh, when he became a U.S. citizen, I, I took my daughters to his naturalization ceremony, which was a magical experience. I highly recommend people check those out if they've never been to one. And he really changed my life. Um, and so he, he changed, you know, just as I was saying earlier that you can use your gifts to make the people around you happier. He did that to me by reminding me to focus on what's important and focus on what I have rather than what I don't have and to stop worrying about stupid things. And it was remarkable. So he earned his way into this book alongside the billionaires. Uh, Yeah. I love how you said he earned his way into the book, the way he earned his way into my heart which is a, yep. a beautiful way of putting that. Um, boy, Chris, what a great conversation. We, I, well, I could talk a lot longer, and that is good because I think that means that we've only scratched the surface and listeners need to go get the book to find out more and to get a more complete telling from you. You've lived it, and now you're telling it. Um, the, the book, again, is called Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant, uh, Success Strategies of the Wealthy, Powerful, and Just Plain Wise. So, Chris, I presume uh, Amazon is the best place to get it. If anyone wants to follow you, is there a uh, website or social media that they should be tracking uh, you on? Yeah, my website is uh, chrisullman.com, C-H-R-I-S-U-L-L-M-A-N.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, it says at C.W. Ullman. Great. And, yeah, I appreciate your interest. Well, this is a great conversation. I've loved it. And we're approaching Thanksgiving. A lot of this book is about gratitude and having the attitude of gratitude all year long. So, Chris, thanks again. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I really appreciate it. And uh, God bless and uh, happy, happy Thanksgiving season. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura. Or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.